Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. We're starting a new series. I originally thought I was going to do a series on Nehemiah, but I think God had other plans. And I will just be honest and say I was inspired by listening to another pastor's sermon. They were preaching on the parables of Matthew 13, and I thought, I want to do that. So we're doing it. Uh, it actually just really kind of occurred to me. I, I liked kind of the... Um, uh, there are some things that I wanted to do with Nehemiah that actually the parables of Matthew 13 do as well. And I think it's a, a better approach for us at this time. Nehemiah is a great story. We will no doubt do that another time. We've done it before. And we will definitely do it again. But tonight we're going to look at those parables. In fact, tonight we're not going to look at the parables. We're just going to do an intro to the parables. There's so much meat. It's just one chapter, but there's so much meat in this one chapter that we're going to spend the next several weeks on the same chapter. And we're going to take our time going through from parable to parable to parable. Tonight, we're really only going to specifically look at three verses, and then we're going to just kind of look at who Matthew is a little bit. So Matthew 13, uh, the first three verses say this. It says, The same day... Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, and you're just going to have to wait for another week to find out what he said. But I want to just talk for a moment about the context. I want to talk about Matthew. I want to talk about Jesus. I want you to just picture this moment, if you will, because think about what it means that Jesus had to get into a boat. It really means a couple of things. It means, number one, that there were a lot of people there. There was such a big crowd that he had to back up. But it means more than that. Because why get into a boat? You know why you get into a boat? Because it's like getting on a stage because people are pressing into you so much. You need a little distance. So he gets in the boat and he backs it out in the water so that people can't be right up against him. Now, why would he do that? Well, because people are crowding right up against him. Well, why are they doing that? Well, it goes back to this line that this starts with. It says, that same day. We're not going to read it, but those of you who want to, if you go back to Matthew 12, what you'll find out is that Jesus just spent the entire day doing healings. So he was doing miracles, and he was healing people, and people were wanting to be healed. But he not only was doing healings, he was also being very provocative about his healings. He was intentionally doing healings in a way that caused people to ask questions. And he just concluded this argument with the Pharisees where they were saying, he must be of the devil. He must be doing this because of the devil. And he gave this argument in which he said, that doesn't make any sense. Why would, I be do, why would I be working against the devil if I was the devil? But what we have is we have Jesus is, is gained a lot of notice. This is a moment in his ministry where people notice him. They want to be healed. They want to be close to him. They want to be right where he is. And so they're pressing in. And so he goes to the lake with an intention of giving a speech. He goes to the lake with an intention of giving a teaching, of giving a sermon, of sharing some truths. He wants people to come. He wants them to press in. But as they press in, he backs up just a little bit. And one of the things that's interesting about that is we're going to learn in a couple weeks that parables do the same thing. They invite people to press in, and then they back up. And you know what happens when people press in and you back up usually? They press in more. <laughs> And this is kind of the idea of parables. Now, we're going to get to all that in a few weeks. Tonight, what I want to do is talk about Matthew. Because Matthew, these these, uh, parables in Matthew 13 
and sort of the nature of them, and the way Matthew shares them, and the way Matthew collects them in this one place, and the way that the, a certain phrase that Matthew uses, these are all unique to who Matthew is. So we have this big speech, and this is a big moment, and in a lot of ways, this is a summary of what the entire Gospel of Matthew is about. So each of the Gospel writers have their own points, and they have their own specific purposes. Even though it's true that Matthew, Mark, and Luke borrowed material from each other, and that is true, even though they all had some similar material, it's also true that Matthew, Mark, and Luke each had very specific different agendas. And in their different agendas, they shared things different ways. For example, Mark is the shortest of the Gospels, and when you read it, I like to call Mark sort of the action hero version. Because everything in Mark is about do. It's about this happened, and then this happened, and this happened. There's not a lot of explanation. There's not a lot of motivation. And you may not be surprised to learn that Mark, in fact, was probably somebody who was writing on behalf of Peter. And Peter, we know, is somebody who often acted before he thought. So it kind of makes sense that it's this action-oriented gospel. But the book of Matthew is different. And I want to talk a little bit about why Matthew does what he does and focuses on what he focuses on. And this is one of the things we see, is when we start getting into the parables, there's eight different parables in this one chapter. And although they all have, well, many of them have different points, a couple of them seem to be the same point, just two different illustrations. But while they, now many of them have different points, they all have the same thing. They're all about the same thing. And they're about something that Matthew, uniquely among the Gospel writers, calls the Kingdom of Heaven. Now this is interesting. Because the other gospel writers, Mark and Luke, for example, specifically, they talk a lot about the kingdom of God. Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven. And it's likely, and the way they use them are often the same. In other words, it's the same kind of idea. And in fact, you could probably argue that the term Jesus, like the youth, was kingdom of God. So why would Matthew sort of change that? Why would he emphasize the kingdom of heaven? And what's interesting is all of these parables are about the kingdom of heaven, so I think it's an important question. There's one sort of... Uh, probably not untrue and simple answer, and that's that Matthew appears to be writing, and we're going to see this in a second, specifically to Jews. And as he's writing specifically to Jews, the Jews were very careful about using the name of God. So it could just be that rather than saying the kingdom of God, he wanted to avoid using the name of God, so he said the kingdom of heaven, out of deference and sensitivity to the Jews. However, it's not entirely true that the Jews were not saying God. Like we pointed out, Jesus probably said the kingdom of God. Other people say God. Um, in fact, even in their prayers, they use the name that we often think of them as not ever using. So there's, there's some things that this became a tradition later on than it was earlier. And so that isn't the entire answer, I don't think. So let's back up. Let's talk about who Matthew was. And because I think as we learn who Matthew is, what his context is, and why the kingdom of heaven is important to him, I think what we discover uh, is something that is also valuable for us. So here's what's interesting. Matthew is writing specifically to Jews, and he talks about the kingdom of heaven because it's specifically and uniquely relevant to them at that moment in time. And I think, interestingly enough, it's specifically and uniquely relevant to us as 21st century American Christians as well. And so that's part of the reason I wanted to talk about it and share that. So we're going to learn four lessons from the parables, and each week we'll go over those. But before we even get to the parables today, just from the basis of who Matthew is, we're going to learn one other lesson about the kingdom of heaven, so that's going to be the first one for so let's start with that question. So who is Matthew? So Matthew is a tax collector named Levi. So in fact, his name is Levi. He's a tax collector. These are things we know about in each of the Gospels. 
he, he has two names, Matthew and Levi, and that's not unusual. There are actually a number of apostles that have two names, right? You've got Simon and Peter, you've got Paul, and you've got Saul. Uh, some of these are names that Jesus changes and gives them. Some of them are that they have both a Roman name and Jewish name because of the world that they're growing up in. And this is true of Matthew, that he's got a Roman name and a Jewish name. His Jewish name is Levi. In fact, the name Levi is a quintessential Jewish name. If you wanted to celebrate and honor and kind of show off your Jewish heritage and your name was Levi, you would stand on it and you would stand on it proudly because Levi is the tribe from which the priesthood comes. And so this is like the cream of the crop. This is a good, a good heritage to have. And so his, his name is Levi. Interestingly enough, Mark and Luke, when they talk about the calling of the apostle, they call him Levi. They sort of honor him by calling him by his Jewish name. But Matthew himself in his own gospel, when he talks about his calling, he calls himself by his Roman name. He calls himself Matthew. And the question is, why would he call himself by his Roman name? Well, that's a teaser. I want you to hold that thought because we're going to get back to that at the end. Okay, we'll come back to this question about his name. But this is what we know. That Matthew, it's a very Greek name, Roman name Matthew, is a tax collector. We'll talk more about what a tax collector is. So hold those thoughts and let's look at another question about who Matthew is. Matthew is an apostle called by Jesus. So we know these two things. He was a tax collector named Levi. And then he was an apostle who was called by Jesus. And we see the story. And as I mentioned, Mark and Luke, they tell us the story. It's almost identical to the way Matthew tells the story, except that Mark and Luke called him Levi. Matthew calls himself Matthew. But in both cases, Jesus comes to Matthew while he's collecting taxes, and he invites him to give it all up and become an apostle. And who's the audience for Matthew, for this tax-collecting apostle? Well, as we mentioned, he appears to be writing to a very Jewish audience. Of all the Gospels, he's the one who's most specifically attentive to the audience being Jews. And we know this a couple of reasons. One, very simply, is he quotes the Old Testament scripture more than anybody else. He relies on the prophecies that talk about who the Messiah is more than anybody else. These are things that the Greeks and the Romans and the Gentiles wouldn't care as much about, but the Jews would. Matthew also refers to certain events within the Jewish world without explanation. Luke and John will sometimes explain about a festival or a feast, and Matthew just says, it was this festival. Or he doesn't even say the festival, he just says what time of year it was, knowing that his Jewish readers will know. So Matthew is clearly writing to a very Jewish audience, uh, quoting the Old Testament extensively, and he does something interesting. He begins with a genealogy, and because of this genealogy, we see that part of what he's doing, and the reason he's writing to, writing to Jews, is because he's stressing the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom of heaven. So what Matthew wants the Jews to be recognizing is that the kingdom they've been waiting for, the kingdom of God, as Mark and Luke call it, the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew calls it, is here, that it's arrived, that the Messiah that they've been waiting for has come. So what we know about the Jews is that for thousands of years they've been waiting for this hero. The word Messiah means anointed one, all right? And, and the word Christ, we talk about Jesus the Christ. Christ is not a name. Christ is the title. It's the Greek term for anointed one. It's the Greek term for Messiah. And so we know that what happened is Jesus came, and Matthew wants to emphasize that Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the hero that they've been waiting for. But to understand what it means to be an Israelite waiting for the kingdom of the Messiah to come, we need to just very quickly understand there's three pinnacle moments in terms of the kingdom of Israel 
that the Israelites would understand. And I want to point these out because it's going to come up here in the second of Matthew. So I know it's a lot of information. Hang with me. This is going to all kind of fit into something really important with Matthew. So the first thing we know from the kingdom of Israel, kind of the first key moment, is that there's this man named Abraham. And this is where the nation of Israel begins. The nation of Israel literally are descendants of this man Abraham. And so every Jew sees himself as a descendant of Abraham. At one point, they're arguing with Jesus. Jesus is claiming importance, and they say to him, Are you saying you're more important than Abraham? Which is something that would have been hard for them to fathom. That anybody could call themselves more important than Abraham. Without Abraham, there are no Israelites. Without Abraham, there is no Jewish heritage. Even David doesn't exist without Abraham. And Jesus' answer, of course, is, Before Abraham was, I am. I, I yes, I'm more important than Abraham, I'm God. So Abraham is important, and God makes these promises to Abraham. He makes several promises, but the basic, basic point for tonight that he makes is that he promises to make Abraham into a nation, a nation of blessing. What he tells Abraham is, I will be your God, and, and you will become a nation with more people than the stars in the sky or the sands in the deserts. And that these people will be a blessing to all nations. And I will be your God, and this is my promise to you. And so you will be, in a sense, a nation of God. You will be a kingdom of God. You will be my people. And so this is kind of the first point that the, the Jews look to in terms of who they are as, as Israelites is, is this promise to Abraham to be a nation. Now, we all know about the Exodus, and this is a huge point in, in Israel's history. But in terms of them being a kingdom, this is not the next sort of major point. What happens is God leads them out of Egypt and begins to teach them what it means to be free men. But they're not a nation yet. They're not a kingdom yet. They're nomads. They're wandering. So the next big point kind of that they see is David. So after they cross the desert and they get to the new land, it's David, it's King David, who fulfills this very messianic type purpose. Now they recognized he was not the Messiah, but I think it was pretty clearly recognized by Jews for a long, long time that he was a type, he was a picture, he was a lot like the Messiah. Because what he does is he brings in this kingdom. He turns these, these people, these descendants of Abraham, into a great nation. A nation which truly blesses other people. And so in many ways, he's the epitome of their expectations. This is the peak. This is the moment. And if it ended here, or if it continued here, this would be the story. There would be no need for a Messiah. David would be it. This isn't the last sort of landmark moment, because we have one great other moment, other significant moment within the nation of Israel, and that's the moment they cease to be a nation. And this is the exile. So Israel is destroyed, and the people are exiled. Babylon comes in, destroys the temple, destroys Jerusalem, and Israel is gone as a nation. Now the people exist, but they're scattered across the world. And they're slaves, and they're in bondage, and they're in Egypt, and they're in Babylon, and they're in Edom, and they're in Assyria, and they're just, they're across the globe. And they're no longer a nation, and their temple is gone, the place where they met with God. They cannot even call themselves a city of God anymore, let alone a kingdom of God. There's no kingdom, there's no country, there's no nation. They're scattered all across, and they're in exile. Now, even in exile, there's still people. And there's stories, all these stories that you read about Esther and Daniel and, and Ezra and Nehemiah point to the fact that even throughout the exile, they maintain a sense of who they are. They're not that nation that they were. And so after the exile, they do manage to rebuild the temple, and Nehemiah has to help them rebuild an identity. But that glorious moment of David is gone. And that lineage of royalty that lineage of a kingship from David's line, which was promised by God that would lead to the Messiahship, it appears to be gone. 
For all intents and purposes, there is no more kingly David lineage that arises during the post-exilic period. And so they wait. The faithful, those who believe, those who still hunger and long for the promises of God to be fulfilled, they wait. They're waiting for that Messiah. They're waiting for the new David. They're waiting for the king who will raise up this new nation. And it's not, it's easy for us to come down hard on them because we happen to have more revelation than they did. Because we live in a time after Jesus and Paul explained everything to us. It's easy to understand why they were waiting for something that was very similar to what David had done before. They were waiting for somebody to come and, and be a warrior like David, and be a king like David, and raise up the nation of Israel and free them from the Roman oppressors, and bring them once again to this place where they had an identifiable national identity as a kingdom of God or a nation of God or a city of God. So that's what they're waiting for. This is the context into which Matthew writes. It's interesting that the other thing that's happening right now at the time that Matthew begins to write, the time that Jesus begins to enter the world, is there's another kingdom. And we know that the kingdom of, of Rome is big, but even within the kingdom of Rome, it's interesting that Jesus comes on the scene at the time of sort of a, another kingdom within Rome, and that's the kingdom of the Herods. You, you've all heard the name of Herod in a lot of the stories, which you may not realize is there's four of them. And their lineage, their they're a legacy, they're a dynasty of kings. But they enjoy their power, and they create a great nation within Rome, in the Jerusalem area. They create uh, palaces and cities, and, and people saw them as great kings within this greater kingdom of Rome. And it's within this kingdom that the Israelites are waiting for their kingdom, for their Messiah. And the hunger is fierce and poignant, and the longing is real. And the sense of timing is that it must happen soon. It's going to happen. And this is the context in which Matthew's writing. And by referring to the term kingdom of heaven instead of the term kingdom of God, Matthew is making a slightly different point than Mark and Luke. And he's trying to make a point that the kingdom they're returning to is not a return to the nation of David. That the kingdom they're coming to is a kingdom which is not perfect. It's easy to see an earthly kingdom as still being the kingdom of God because that's how Israel saw themselves before. But to call it the kingdom of heaven is to stress the kingdom that's coming that the Messiah is going to bring is one which is not earthly. It won't be of the same earthly boundaries and national boundaries that you've experienced before. So he starts with genealogy. And one thing you notice right away about Matthew's genealogy is it's not quite like anybody else's. It's not identical to the other genealogy, for example, of Luke. And there's questions that people have and people wonder, but there's a couple of things that stand out that I think really help us. And so one of the first things we see about Matthew's genealogy, let me read it to you, and then I'll tell you. Maybe you'll notice what stands out. So this is going to be the first time, perhaps in your life, you've listened to this genealogy to try to pick something up and not just let it roll over you as a bunch of names you're not familiar with. Listen and see if you can identify, based upon the information you just heard, see if you can identify anything interesting about why Matthew is giving the genealogy the way he does. Here we go. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Elikim, Elikim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Now, it's easy to miss because you're not looking at it if you're just listening to me. But if you read it, we often have those set off. There's actually three distinct parts of that genealogy. And in case you miss it, the next verse tells you what those three distinct parts are. Matthew says, Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, what's interesting is this is not technically true. <laughs> there appear to be more than 14 generations in each of these moments. But Matthew wants to simplify it, he wants to structure it, and he wants to break it into three distinct groups. And the groups are Abraham to David, David to the exile, and the exile to him. Because these are the three landmark moments of the nationalism of Israel. And he wants to point out that from Abraham to David was the beginning, was the growth of Israel into a nation. From David to the Babylon is the decline when Israel no longer lived or existed as a national figure on the stage. And now, he's saying, from exile to now, we have the Messiah, we have the new Abraham, we have the new David, and he's going to do something different. It's not going to be like Abraham. It's not going to be like David. It's going to be something else. He's going to usher in the kingdom of heaven. So he emphasizes these three points. He stresses for the Israelites what they would expect. He emphasizes that Jesus does come from Abraham. He is a Jew. He emphasizes that Jesus does come from David. He is of that royal lineage of David. He was, this was expected from the Messiah. He was to be a branch from David's royal lineage. So far, this fits with the idea of the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. But there's something else that Matthew does which is unusual within his genealogy. He sets it up so they understand this is absolutely the Messiah. He fits the flow. He comes from the right lineage. He's a Jew. He's up David. He's, he's in the right place. But it does something else unusual in his genealogy. He includes four non-Jewish women within it. Four women within the genealogy who are not Jewish. They're not of the right lineage. They're not of the, of the people. They're not of the nation of Israel. They don't exist in that in that earthly nation. And everybody knew this was true because the Old Testament tells us this is so. Matthew doesn't make up any of these people that he puts in the genealogy. They're all clearly in the Old Testament uh, stories. They're in the Old Testament narrative. 
So everybody knows it's true, but how strange is a strange departure for a man who's writing specifically to the Jews to emphasize, to highlight, to make a point that amid Jesus' pedigree, his Jewish and royal pedigree, there's this weird mix of non-Jewish men. What does it mean that the Messiah has so prominently included within his lineage Gentile women? And not just Gentile women, but Gentile women exalted in Scripture. Gentile women told about the Old Testament. Given special notice here, but not only here, in the Old Testament as well. Matthew is pointing out the place they've been given. And I think it tells us and reminds us of two things that Matthew wants to remind us about the Messiah. As he talks of the kingdom of heaven, he wants to let make sure the Jews don't miss the significant part of what's recorded even in the genealogy. One of the things that's really fascinating to me is that Matthew bookends his gospel with a similar reminder in both cases. That's that the Messiah, the kingdom of heaven, is for all nations. Do you see again why he might emphasize this, the kingdom of heaven? It's not an earthly kingdom because it transcends boundaries. It transcends national boundaries. It's a kingdom for all nations. And he emphasizes this at the beginning of Matthew by giving a genealogy which includes non-Jewish women, and then the very last verse, the very last thing, the last word in Matthew's gospel comes from Jesus. It is his words after the resurrection. It is his speech. It is the last thing he says, and it emphasizes this same thing that Matthew emphasizes at the beginning, that the kingdom of heaven is for all people. And I know my head's in the way now, because huh? it's a big passage. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. All nations, all peoples. The Jewish Messiah is a Messiah for all people. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom for all nations and for all people. And I think this is part of the reason that Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven, to emphasize it transcends these earthly boundaries. It transcends these national things. So thus, the kingdom of heaven. Not an earthly kingdom, but one which transcends national boundaries and people groups. A kingdom which encompasses people from every race, every race, every race. White rice, Brown fried rice, rice, jasmine rice. Jasmine rice. <laughs> my race. A kingdom which encompasses people from every race as well, and tribe. And when you mix race and tribe, that's how you come up with race. Uh, a kingdom that encompasses people from every race and tribe and people and nation. A kingdom in which all are called from every place. There's no room for racism. There's no room for any kind of elitism within the kingdom of heaven. Matthew is clear through this genealogy not to dismiss the important role that Israel plays. He acknowledges that the Messiah for the entire world comes through the Jews. As God promised, the Messiah would bless all the nations. But Matthew emphasizes that all the nations are. It was important for Matthew's fellow countrymen to remember that their allegiance was to God first. That their heritage was as his people first, and not to the vision they had of a Davidic earthly kingdom. Likewise, I believe it's entirely possible to be a grateful, 
patriotic American who loves their country and a devout, faithful Christian at the same time. But there is a brand of Christian nationalism in our culture which seems to forget that we serve not an earthly kingdom, but a kingdom of heaven. By emphasizing heaven, Matthew reminds us of the non-earthly, non-national nature of the kingdom. And it is as important for us to remember as it was for them. But Matthew actually goes further. Matthew not only emphasizes the Gentile women in the lineage, but he actually selects, in some cases, women who could have been seen as outcasts. He selects women who were prostitutes. He selects stories of deceit. He selects stories which highlight not just the beautiful moments, but the ugly ones among the lineage of Jesus. He selects stories which make the men and the women equally participate in stories which don't reflect on the purity and beauty Stories which indicate that the kingdom of heaven is not just for all nations or all people groups, but literally for all people. No matter how despised by the world. No matter how unfit. It was really important to Matthew to remind his readers that the Messiah invites all people. The outcasts, the riffraff, the breakfast club. It's a reference some of you will understand. Into his kingdom. And this brings us back to the point I promised we'd return to. This idea, this understanding that Matthew has that the kingdom of heaven is for all people, no matter how earthly, <laughs> no matter how non-heavenly, no matter how unfit. It's important to understand why it's so important to Matthew when it comes back to this idea of Levi becoming as I mentioned, it's interesting that when Mark and Luke talk of the calling of Matthew to Jesus, they refer to him by his Jewish name, Levi, while Matthew refers in his own gospel to himself only as Matthew at this moment. Well, why did this be? The very name Matthew, in fact, was a reminder that he was a tax collector. Tax collector was not just a job that people might not like because they were collecting your taxes. To be a tax collector in the Roman world meant that you worked if you were a Jew working as a tax collector, you were a collaborator. You were a trader. You worked for the oppressor. You did the work of oppressing your fellow countrymen. That's how they saw it. And tax collecting was a despised job even among the Romans, but a necessary one, they thought. And it was despised because the Roman government encouraged corruption among the tax collectors. And this is how they did it. They sent the tax collectors out to collect a certain amount of tax from all the people in the towns. And there weren't forms to fill out, and there weren't W-2s, and there weren't 1040s. There was just a guy knocking on your door with the force of the government, with the power of a centurion beside him, perhaps literally beside him. And he would say to you, it's time to pay your taxes. And you would collect your money, and you would pay it to the taxman. But the, royal, the Roman government said this, here's how you get paid, Mr. Taxman. You collect this amount of taxes for us, and anything you collect above and beyond that, you get to keep. Well, if you don't think human nature takes advantage of that, to use that force that you've got at that centurion to make yourself a pretty penny, well, then you would have been the most unusual tax collector in Rome because they were all wealthy. They were all corrupt. And so if you were a Jew, as a Roman tax collector, you were a traitor, you were corrupt. In fact, it's interesting when you read the New Testament to find all sorts of references to prostitutes, sinners, and tax collectors and usually tax collectors are at the bottom of that list. <laughs> the only thing worse 
that being a Gentile or maybe a Samaritan would be a tax collector. Matthew is the bottom of the barrel. It's interesting because when he is called to be an apostle, I think we see Mark and Luke being kind. I think we see them in their love and their graciousness to the converted man, Levi. They call him Levi rather than bring up his past, rather than sort of saddle him with this memory of being this corrupt, traitorous, collaborating tax collector. But it's even more interesting that Matthew doesn't shy away from it. When Matthew talks about the calling of Levi, he calls it what it is. He calls it what it is. He calls it what it is. He calls himself Matthew. He says, there I was, the tax collector. Takes it all. The collaboration, the traitorous impressions, the idea of having that Roman name that he's taken, his own sort of, it appears that he's despising his own Jewish heritage at that time, by taking his Roman name for his own, he owns it all. He says, this is who I was when Jesus called me. I was not a quintessential Jew. I was not worthy of being a priest in the Levite priesthood. That was who I was. I was mad. My colored past. The interesting thing about Matthew, about being a tax collector, about being a Jewish tax collector in the Roman world, is nobody loved you. You see that? The Jews didn't like you, but you think the Romans liked you any better? You were a Jew. <laughs> and you weren't even a respectable Jew. You were a Jew, care of everything for money. If you're a principled Roman, you don't like him as much as the Jews don't like him. Nobody likes Matthew. In fact, we discover from the moment that Matthew is called by Jesus, he invites his closest friends to a party, and those friends are described as sinners and prostitutes. There's such a low group that when Jesus goes to their house, the Pharisees say to Jesus, why on earth are you hanging out with them? What are you doing? This is who Matthew was. So when Matthew writes of his own call, this is how he writes it. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to the righteous, but the sinners. When Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven, he wants to remind us the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of sinners. It's a kingdom of broken and sick and unhealthy and outcast and despised and alone and lonely isolated. It's a kingdom of tax collectors and sinners. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, says Jesus. Go learn what this means. Do you not even know what this means? Go learn. Because I've come for mercy, not for sacrifice. So what Matthew teaches us, before he even gets into the parables, what he teaches us about the kingdom of heaven 
is that the kingdom of heaven embraces the powerless, the despised, and the outcasts of the world. He repeatedly wants us to understand the kingdom of heaven is accessible to everyone, even those otherwise seen as powerless, despised, and outcast. Now certainly also welcome are those seen as powerful and loved and in the midst of popularity, but the appeal of the kingdom of heaven for those people is sometimes missed. Like these Pharisees who said, why are you hanging out with them? He's implying to them, you need to decide. If you're healthy, I'm not here for you. If you're willing to acknowledge your lack of health, if you're willing to acknowledge your need, then you're welcome. He doesn't despise anybody. I was thinking about kind of how to phrase this earlier, and I thought about this. While the Messiah does not despise those the world loves, those who love the world often despise him. Jesus says this, he is forgiven much, loves much. And when he says this, my understanding is not that there are actually some people who are forgiven more and some people who are good enough, they didn't need to be forgiven, but it's a sense of perspective. Do you understand how much you needed his forgiveness? And so it's easy for those who are already feeling alone and unwelcome and unwanted to recognize the value of the kingdom of heaven. I've said this before and I'll say it again because I think it's such an important point. Sometimes people will complain that Jesus, that Christianity feels exclusive because the message, which is true, which they hear, but only half understand, is that you can only get to heaven through Jesus. And to them, that feels as if we're excluding people. But here's what I want you to realize. When there's only one way to Jesus, and every single person has the same access to that one door, to that one way, that means it is the most egalitarian thing in the entire universe. Because everything else in our experience, you have greater access to. If you know the right people, have the right power, have the right money, have the right blessing. If you can get the right riches, you can get in better. There's no back door. There's no celebrity pass. There's no stage pass. There's no earning. Uh, uh, there's nothing that can get you there any differently. We all enter only by the blood of Christ, by the grace of Christ, by the righteousness of Christ. And if that's true... That means that you and I and the guy next door and the guy in the White House and the, the guy across the ocean all have the exact same opportunity and the exact same access. And the world doesn't give you the same access to almost anything. But the kingdom of heaven does. This is what we see in a lot of parables. We see some of them in the parables we look at. Everyone is wanted in the kingdom of heaven. That's our first lesson. We're going to learn five, but I want to start with that. Everyone is wanted in the kingdom of heaven. You may turn down the offer that Jesus gives you. You may turn down the embrace or the, the, the invitation to salvation. You may turn down the offer to join us at the banquet. But you can't say it's because you're not wanted. Everyone is wanted. Everyone's embraced. I originally wrote everyone is welcome, but it's more than that. Everyone is wanted. You're wanted so much that the Lord sacrificed himself that you could be at this banquet, that you could come to the party. And if you're afraid you won't fit in at the party, remember that Jesus attended parties with tax collectors and sinners. He also attended parties with Pharisees and lawyers. He attended parties 
Most churches believe in the value of small groups and a focused church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.